Fresh episode of Fish Bites for you. Eli Sussman here to fill you in on the Miami Marlins midway through the 2020 Grapefruit League schedule. Let me put it to you this way. We have this episode, one next week, one the week after that, and then the MLB regular season will be here. So close. Can you smell it? Can you smell it? We're getting there. In the meantime, for spring training coverage and season preview coverage go to fishstripes.com nice website there go check it out new stuff just about every single day on social media at fishstripes on twitter where we're closing in on 7,000 followers instagram nearly 1,000 followers on youtube on facebook fishstripes across the board help us get to those milestones please if you're not already part of the community we appreciate all of you for joining us all dimensions of our coverage very recently just a few days ago we recorded a new episode of earning their stripes season two of our podcast show that is dedicated specifically to minor leaguers and top prospects it was ethan Badowski, spencer morris and myself a full hour discussing the latest top prospect lists and what we've been seeing in spring training Uh, moving forward i'm not going to be on that many episodes of the show i'll be producing a lot of those episodes and making sure to get the best quality guests on to talk specifically about prospects most of this episode is a conversation between myself and mark simon of sports info solutions he helped put together the fielding bible volume 5 which you can pre-order now mark shares a lot of great insight about baseball defense including specific nuggets about marlins players You can see a lot by the eye test, and you've seen analysis from various people on the beat about Marlins players, but what Mark and the folks at Sports Info Solution do is they find new ways to quantify the impact that these guys have in the way that baseball defense is changing at the highest level. To get you warmed up for that, let's run you through the latest Marlins-related news. Friday saw the first round of cuts from Marlins Major League Spring Training Camp. Initially, we had this group of 65 guys trying to force their way onto the 26-man active roster for opening day. Now we are down to just 55 candidates with the departure of these 10 prospects who are either reassigned to minor league camp or optioned to a minor league affiliate. They are Edward Cabrera, Daniel Castano, Braxton Garrett, George Guzman, Jordan Holloway, BJ Lopez, Umberto Mejia, Victor Victor Mesa, Trevor Rogers, and the top prospect of them all, Sixto Sanchez. With the exception of Sixto, we got to see all these guys participate somewhat in Grapefruit League games against Major League competition. Edward Cabrera especially really impressed with his raw stuff, topping out at his fastball around 100 miles per hour in games, even as we're so early in the process of building up for the regular season. Uh, him and Guzman and Sixto especially are all strong candidates to be called up at some point during the 2020 season for the first time. Um, and half of this group was already on the 40-man roster, Cabrera and Guzman, Holloway, Mejia, and Sanchez. The other five were non-roster invitees to spring training. 
again, I mean, none of these were really strong candidates for opening day in the first place. So all the existing position battles that we were already paying attention to, those remain somewhat unaffected by these. A little bit of a bummer that we don't get to see some of these really high upside talents participating in continued games, but uh, we're only about a week away from the start of minor league games starting up on the backfields at Roger Dean Chevrolet Stadium and elsewhere. You'll get to see these people, these people, you'll get to see these prospects participating in those games. Uh, be sure to take advantage of that. It's a great, great um, access to these type of players before their full regular seasons get underway. About a month ago, I debuted this lighthearted illustration style that used emojis to articulate the changes to the Marlins roster over the offseason. And using that same style, I put up something new on social media and also on fishstripes.com that shows the progression of spring training camp going from those initial 65 names uh, down to what will ultimately be 26 players. So you can find that in the latest article that went up on Friday about the cuts. And we'll be we'll be continuing to update that graphic as we get more information about players being reassigned to options, um, straight up released or traded, as well as any injuries, just showing the progress of going down from all these initial names that, frankly, there'll be a few of these players that you don't even remember um, once we get into the regular season, it's always interesting to look back and see some of the names that wore a Marlins uniform but never actually got into meaningful games. Uh, and, and there are some interesting ones still in Major League camp right now. And as you know, the team is performing pretty well in spring training thanks to um, a variety of different players from different walks of life that just happen to be doing well on the field. When it comes to off-the-field news, Radio host Andy Slater was the first to report the end of the partnership between the Clevelander and Marlins Park. For each of the first eight seasons in the ballpark, the Clevelander had that space beyond the left field fence. They had their pool. Uh, they sold drinks. They sold some seats. That gave you an up-close view of the field itself. And uh, now that's changing. It's not exactly over. It's being um, reimagined. Well, separate from the Clevelander, it was announced as a mutual parting of ways. Uh, you could look at it one way or the other. Maybe the Clevelander was unhappy about not getting a whole lot of business, considering ha what we know about the Marlins' attendance over the course of this new ballpark's existence. And maybe the Marlins themselves were just looking for something different. Uh, it was Chief Revenue Officer Adam Jones that phrased it as a way of reaching a new variety of audience rather than just the young adult group. And uh, according to Billy Gill of the Dan Lebetard show, he believes it's going to be renamed Left Field Social. I have a source. Give it's it going to be called Left Field Social. I'm confused. Hang on. He's okay. breaking news here, know, Chris. Let, them, let the man speak. Well, it's going to be called Left Field Social. Uh -huh. And the Marlins, according to this source, are in discussions with various brands around Miami to create pop-up experiences there. And there's going to be like a seating area that you need tickets for. And then the other bit is going to just be like kind of open air. Fans can come in. The bar will st still be there, just no pool. Mm -hmm. The seats will still be there. You need tickets for those. But everything else is going to be different, I guess, from game to game. That part I'm, on, I'm unsure on. Presumably this left field social space will be almost ready for opening day or, or shortly thereafter. We'll have to see for sure. Uh, I was curious as to how this was being received by the fans themselves. We put up some polls, and I was surprised by how much interaction we got on these 
polls about the Clevelander. People were at very strong opinions one way or the other about this news. After eight seasons, I asked uh, that now that the Clevelander is gone, uh, be honest, did you ever go there during a Marlins game? And we got over a thousand responses to this, both on Twitter and on the website. And the the clear majority did not go to the Clevelander. They had, you had to, if you do the math, every home game for the last eight years, you had over five hundred and sixty opportunities to check it out. Actually, I have to amend that. It's over six hundred and forty home games. Yeah, eighty one a year. Yeah, over six hundred and forty games that you had an opportunity to go to the Clevelander during the game, after the game, and roughly 72% says that they did not ever go to this Clevelander location in the ballpark. Um, So the majority did not use it, uh, but from what I can gather, the people that did go to it were generally happy with the experience, and they they liked that it was a part of the ballpark that offered a different vibe than the other parts did. So this is not a universally praised decision, but it does seem that many people are are not directly going to be affected by it. Uh, Overall, as we've seen under new ownership, there's been a lot of changes to the ballpark experience, uh, most obviously in terms of the pricing to get into the ballpark and the parking situation, which is the prices are coming down to actually drive to Marlins games this coming year. That was also finally announced by the Marlins this week. And uh, we've seen changes to the concessions, changes to other seating areas of the park with the removal of the home run sculpture, putting that outside, setting up the other standing room only section down the right field line. So there have been plenty of changes. And uh, from what we've experienced so far, the majority of them have worked out relatively well to the core audience. And uh, so we'll put some trust in what they're doing right here, that they uh, put their due diligence into making the decision And we'll have to see what this new left field social actually looks like and some of the specifics of what other partners are going to be involved with it. But another story that was certainly related to the Marlins and that I'm sure you guys all have opinions on is Christian Yelich, the recent NL MVP, uh, nearly repeat NL MVP, who started his career with the Marlins, who infamously signed a very team-friendly extension with the Marlins that allowed him to have so much trade value in the first place a couple years ago when they sent him to Milwaukee, bringing back that four-player package in return. Uh, We know how things are going since then for both sides of the equation. He is coming off a knee injury, but nonetheless a great season, unanimously guarded as one of the best players in baseball, and the Brewers wanted to keep him. And apparently, he says he wanted to stay in Milwaukee for what could be the rest of his career, signing a new deal that adds seven years and $188.5 million to his contract. It's now a total of nine years, $215 million. And everybody... Who follows the Brewers is feeling 22 here today after Yelich signs a record contract. In in many people's eyes, a good deal for the Brewers to be able to get him at this kind of rate where he'll never earn necessarily top dollar relative to his position, uh, but, but certainly great security for him. And they had their press conference on Friday, and he finally got into some spring training games after coming off this knee injury. I wouldn't say there's any new moral to the story here from a Marlins perspective. I maintain that the team didn't have to trade Yelich exactly when they did, 
but even in all these alternate universes, this is probably where it was heading eventually, just an awkward fit with the direction that the organization was headed in. He made it clear that he wasn't enthused and all that excited to be part of that rebuild itself, so maybe they could have sold a little bit higher on him, but if he had this breakout anywhere else, it would have been painful to watch from afar. Um, some Marlins fans are taking delight in the fact that the Brewers now have what many believe to be the worst, weakest farm system in baseball. And so now that they're paying Yelich all this money and they don't have all that much dependable, controllable talent coming up through the pipeline, it appears that there's a good chance that the Brewers may have peaked as in the NLCS a couple of years ago. And they, they never get over that hump and they never won a World Series. But they have Yelich, who has a chance now to solidify himself as the best player in franchise history and a Hall of Famer. And all his comments and all his behavior since going to Milwaukee has been a model citizen. He's been the model face of the franchise. People love him. Brewer fans are are happy with what the team has accomplished the past couple years. And uh, even without a farm system, if they make some other prudent moves at the major league level, they have have some interesting supporting cast around Yelich, at least for this year. So there's still potential for them in what's a wide-open National League, a wide-open National League Central Division. More and more this spring, you've heard trusted voices from across the baseball industry praising what the Marlins are building. Uh, All these layers of talents in the farm system with answers, or at least potential answers, at almost every position to hopefully comprise the core of a sustainable contender. The reality is, no matter how carefully you go about this, your great team is never going to be 100% homegrown. There'll need to be some outside acquisitions to put them over the top. And uh, that continues to be my one point of skepticism. My, my big question about the Marlins front office going forward is whether they're going to hit correctly on these big decisions to acquire established players or ones just entering their prime to push this team over the top to find their own Yelich in the coming years, whether it's in trade or in free agency. So that's not a decision to be made now, not necessarily even this year, but it's on the horizon. And I think Brewers fans and the player himself, from Yelich's perspective, they're pretty happy with how all of that worked out. My pick for Game of the Week goes back to Friday, March 6th, playing the Washington Nationals. The Marlins and Nats played three times this week. The Nationals winning the first one, the teams tying in the most recent one on Saturday, and in between on Friday night, it was a comeback win for the Marlins by a score of 7-3. to It was Sandy Alcantara's third start of the spring, and it was clearly his best start. The first two times out, he combined to walk seven batters with only one strikeout. This time, finally had more strikeouts than walks, and that includes carrying a no-hitter through the first three innings. Uh, That was already his longest start of the spring. Then they brought him out for the fourth inning because he was relatively efficient and successful. Uh, Had a little bad luck on a ball in the infield, and he left with a couple runners on base. Uh, Charged with two earned runs. Both of those were inherited runners that scored off of Dylan Lee, the left-handed reliever. Uh, So all in all, it was somewhat encouraging for Sandy. His velocity looks good. Still not throwing 
quite as many strikes the second time through the order as you would hope to see, but he does have a couple more tune-ups between now and opening day. The Marlins still have not formally announced who their opening day starter is going to be. Sandy, of course, had the most productive overall season in the rotation, but the question is going to be about his control. I mean, that was somewhat inconsistent at times in 2019. It was also inconsistent in the, in the spring heading into last season as well, which is why not to be too alarmed about him uh, just because the walk totals are high at this point. He, he's a guy that is able to overcome that at certain points, and he's shown he's he's able to do that. We're going to have a more in-depth analysis piece on fish stripes this upcoming week about sandy and what to make of his spring training performance so far but this one outing in particular was more comforting than the previous two for sure entering this game in relief right-hander brad boxberger worked a clean impressive one two three inning his fastball topped out at 95 miles per hour and he has been one of the bright spots of spring training. There have been a lot of bright spots, but he's been the one, especially among the new acquisitions from as just a non-roster invitee to spring training. He is someone that on the surface didn't look all that interesting. His fastball velocity has been in decline for the last handful of years, and particularly during his 2019 season with the Royals, he was bad. He just couldn't throw strikes all that consistently. And his stuff appeared to be in decline uh, when he couldn't make it in the Royals bullpen during a season when they were just as bad as the Marlins were. Um, made you scratch your head a little bit as to what to expect from him. As it turns out, most of his offseason was spent with driveline baseball, the, the very well-regarded training facility in the Pacific Northwest. He not only worked on adding velocity, but just remaking the rest of his pitch arsenal to to complement each other better and to get more swings and misses that has really showed up in these spring training games it's only been about four or five outings from him so far it's a small small sample size but as things currently project i think he's gonna make it on the opening day roster he's a non-roster invitee if he's placed on the active roster he gets a one million dollar base salary and uh, that would be a bargain if you think he's gonna be one of the better relievers on the team from my own observations, I think he is one of the top three, top four relief options that the Marlins have ready to go at the top of the season. If he does well, he's someone that could draw some interest at the trade deadline among contenders. He does have major league closing experience dating back to his time with the Rays and the Diamondbacks. He's not that old, still just in his early 30s, and no strings attached beyond this upcoming season. A nice find by this Marlins team. Uh, hopefully he keeps up a couple more outings, and that's going to lead to some interesting decisions on this roster to get him onto the 40-man and then obviously uh, placed onto the 26-man active roster once the real games get started. On the offensive side, the Marlins got home runs from Chad Wallach and from Lewis Brinson, both of them two-run shots. Wallach going the opposite field to right for his two-run shot, which gives him 10 runs batted in this spring, by far the most on the Marlins team. And I owe him an apology. There was a time over this winter when I thought it would have made sense for the Marlins to designate him for assignment. He was coming off a concussion last year and uh, symptoms that kept recurring and prevented him from getting back into the lineup. 28 years old with very little major league track record, and he was a clear uh, third string catcher on their depth chart 
considering Alfaro coming back and the signing of Francisco Cervelli. But now we have Alfaro still working his his way back from an oblique injury. And Wallach looks um, just as good as he did last spring and maybe even better. Maybe This is really the best that we've seen him hit over any sort of sample size. Hitting the ball hard to all fields. That's the key. All fields. Um, we know he's a solid defender behind the plate. He he can help this team. They have a lot of other questions beyond Cervelli and Alfaro on their depth chart. Uh, so there would be a pretty significant drop-off if Alfaro was to miss time. Uh, Wallach is, is clearly the probably best candidate to step in in that kind of situation. He does have some minor league options remaining doesn't need to be on the opening day roster to stay in the road to stay in the organization just a really pleasant surprise considering how helpless he looked at times with the bat especially in 2018 and um he's shown himself to be more than that you just hope he can stay healthy the blast by brinson would put the marlins ahead for good they did follow that up with a rally in the seventh inning to add some insurance just a dream of a half inning if you're into Marlins prospects and the near-term future of what this lineup could look like. Jazz Chisholm, Jesus Sanchez, Monte Harrison, and Lewin Diaz, all of them reached base in the same rally. Just amazing to see all four of those guys, none of whom have major league experience yet, but all of them with the potential to be called up this upcoming season. And they've impressed already, even before this game. They've turned some heads with how they've performed overall during Grapefruit League games. And uh, they weren't starting in this game. came off the bench for some of the veteran players. Just beautiful to see them combine to add three runs during that rally. Keeping the Nationals stuck at three runs, right-hander Nick Neidert came out of the bullpen and tossed three scoreless innings. I've been high on Neidert and his potential to make the transition from the high minors to the majors pretty effortlessly. This was his best outing of the spring, coming off a bunch of great outings that he had in the Arizona Fall League after missing some time last year with a knee issue. Still looking like a a big long shot for the opening day roster, just because of how his innings were limited in 2019. It'd be a lot to ask for him to join the rotation and to stick there throughout the year without uh, overexerting him. So you can expect him before the end of camp, I imagine, to be optioned to AAA Wichita and be one of the, the first options brought up during the season when an opportunity presents itself. He's he's a lot of fun. He's a nice contrast in styles from many of these other power pitchers that the Marlins have in the high levels of their minor league system. Before moving on from this game of the week, a, a few more words about Lewis Brinson, the spring training sensation yet again. For his career, he has just as many home runs in spring training games as he does in major league regular season games. And we've seen it before, how it simply just does not translate when the real competition gets started. Uh, Certainly in this case with his power hitting, uh, take those with a grain of salt, five extra base hits, but none of them against, against legitimate major league pitchers. Just not the type of guys you'll be seeing when these games start to count at the highest level. 226 at bats, no homers in the big leagues. There's a high fly ball, way back, left field, see you later. Lewis Brinson, I think he put that on the roof of the Marlins building in left field. And it's two to... What I do like about him a lot so far is how he's putting balls in play just in general. 22 plate appearances as of this recording 
one strikeout. That's a strikeout rate under 5%. Is small sample size, but not, not the type of sample we've ever seen from him before. Not during regular season games, uh, but more importantly, that, that that's what makes this feel somewhat different than the last couple springs that we know didn't last. Let me dig it up for you. In spring of 2018, he had 58 at-bats, struck out 17 times. Spring of 2019, 54 at-bats, struck out 18 times. So those are strikeout rates in the high 20s, low 30s, which is poor, which is poor, and it's similar to what has plagued him during the regular season. This spring, 22 plate appearances, 22 at-bats, and one strikeout, one. So that's an incredible change. We're going to have to see what the next couple weeks look like because, remember, this sample that we're looking at so far is only about two weeks of it. There's just as much time remaining in Grapefruit League games as there have been so far, only halfway through. Uh, Certainly, his overall numbers will come down a peg before it's over. Uh, How much does this actually change your opinion of Brinson compared to what it looks like entering spring training? I think it's a little bit encouraging. It is encouraging, the fact that he's putting balls in play, because it's been a variety of reasons why he has struggled to put balls in play before. Some of it has been just an inability to recognize pitches. Others have had to do with his mechanics and simply not being able to get his bat through the zone as quickly as he would like. Uh, Others have been the selectivity, getting himself into poor counts where he's been forced to expand the zone in an attempt to extend his plate appearances once he's already behind 0-1, 0-2, 1-2 in the count. Uh, there's a lot of flaws in his game, and it's unrealistic to think that he can address all of them. But it's promising. It's promising, and um, it really begs the question of whether or not he'll be on the opening day roster or not. I, I think my current expectation is that he won't be simply because he has minor league options remaining, whereas guys like um, Matt Joyce obviously doesn't. He's been brought in. Uh, Magnaris Sierra, are the Marlins ready to turn the page on Sierra, a guy that offers a lot in different facets of the game? He's out of options and needs to be taken care of. And, I mean, most obviously we've seen Jonathan VR play very consistently in center field, and that has bumped Brinson uh, in most of these appearances to play the corner spots as well, where the Marlins already have Corey Dickerson and Joyce and Garrett Cooper is a possibility there. And Brian Anderson is a possibility in right field. They have a lot of options in the outfield and all of those options have hit better in meaningful games than Brinson has. Brinson is to this point, one of the worst hitters we've ever seen in major league baseball over a significant sample. And nothing he can do this spring will wipe that away. Who knows if some other injuries pop up, uh, if the Marlins do make some unexpected trades, then there is a path for Brinson potentially to be on the opening day roster. But uh, we've already spoke about over the course of the offseason that you need to adjust your expectations for Brinson. And uh, no matter what he does this spring, you you can't fully reverse that back. Okay, interview time. Defensive runs saved, the rise of the infield shift, and a whole lot more. Take a listen to Mark Simon of Sports Info Solutions.
Joining me on the Fist Stripes podcast for the first time, it's Mark Simon of Sports Info Solutions. He's a co-author of the brand new The Fielding Bible, Volume 5, covering all things related to baseball defense. It has essays on all 30 MLB teams, including our Miami Marlins. That's why he's here. Mark also wrote The Yankees Index, Every Number Tells a Story, back in 2016, and that was published uh, several years ago. And my father is a diehard Yankees fan. He has that in his collection. So, Mark, we're guaranteed to get at least one listener to this conversation, hopefully more than that. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Looking forward to talking to Marlon fans. Uh, well, most of our audience at Fistripes is already familiar with the metric defensive run saved that's involved in a lot of our analysis on the website. So they're already, they have that level of literacy already. And um, But they might not know that Baseball Info Solutions is the one that like, actually has that raw data and provides it to those other mainstream outlets for them to read up on, on fan graphs and baseball reference. I don't know if they knew that connection that it's coming straight from you guys. And I mean, from what you guys just announced a few days ago, there's now going to be some changes into how you actually gather all that data and put it into proper context. So could you start off with that, just explaining how the version of DRS that we've already come to know and love, how that's being upgraded moving forward? Sure. And it's appreciated that uh, people are familiar with the statistics, defensive runs. Uh, yes, it is available on Fangraphs and Baseball Reference. No, they didn't compile it. We did. Right. Uh, we have an army of people here that are tracking games uh, over the course of the season, every play, every pitch. Uh, every game is scrutinized in a level of detail with a level of advanced scorekeeping uh, that I think you would be impressed by, uh, hopefully, if you saw it. So the fundamental thing with the statistic is the idea of trying to be able to establish who's good at turning batted balls into outs. There are other things you have to do at your position turn double plays, field bunts, throw out base runners, whatever, but your money is made on whether or not you made the play. And for infielders, uh, that has changed and evolved with defensive shifts. And where you play is now much more dictated by a team person than it is by you. So we wanted to come up with a way with our defensive run save statistic where we could show that, where we could assign a value to the team for positioning you and then a value to you for making the play or missing the ball, regardless, whichever happens, that's how we would track it. Um, so we took our existing defensive run save, which kind of combined range and positioning together, and we said we're gonna, we were able to come up with a way to split them up. Our technological advancements have allowed us to do that. So, for example, um, if a guy is playing, uh, if Miguel Rojas is playing really deep in the shortstop third base hole and there's a ball hit up the middle, the team is losing value for positioning him in a bad spot. He's not losing any value, though, for being unable to get to that ball. Whereas in the previous version of the stat, he may have been losing that value for not being able to get to that ball. So we came up with a methodology that allows us to separate positioning from range and from throwing. So you get a you get a value for making the play, and then that is split up among those three components. Did the team put you in the right spot? Did you get to the ball? And did you complete the play uh, once you did get to the ball? Did you either step on the base or throw the ball across the field? So we did that for infielders specifically. And what that allowed us to do was 
there was a uh, any time that there was a shift on, we were previously giving all of the credit in the shift to the fielder, to the I'm sorry, to the team, meaning right. that a ground ball right up the middle where the shortstop's playing right behind second base and he feels it. He wasn't getting that credit. The team was getting the credit. He wasn't because we didn't know necessarily where he started. Now with technological advancements, we know. Um, so now we can consider a lot more plays than we were considering previously. Every play the fielder, infielder is involved in uh, is one that uh, that you can gain or lose value on. So that's the big thing that we've done with our statistic again. If there are people out there that are familiar with it, that's great. If they aren't, if you Google defensive run saves, you can get a pretty quick education, I think. Interesting. And one player in particular that has rated very highly under the existing defensive run saves and who we imagine will still be a positive contributor moving forward, that's Brian Anderson, who the past two years, it's pretty remarkable. His, his playing time has been split almost down the middle between third base and right field, like over 1,200 innings at both positions. And particularly last year, uh, having a big breakout, especially in the eyes of DRS at both positions, uh, two fairly different positions that you don't necessarily see players splitting their time between in particular. Uh, Can you give us some insight into what it is specifically about his defense that is saving runs, which attributes that he brings to the table? Because I think by the eye test, that's um, the Marlins fan community already picked up on that. There was a building consensus that, wow, this guy's incredible. And the fact that especially one of these positions being pretty foreign to him, he's been able to pick up on it pretty quickly. But if there's anything in particular, the components that you guys can break down um, within DRS, what what is it specifically that he's able to do well above the league average at those positions? Sure. Uh, He's a good one to talk about. And the uniqueness of his game is certainly very interesting. Um, I'll, I'll start at third base. So Combined between third base and right field last year, he had 13 defensive runs saved. We consider zero average, uh, five to 10 is good, 10 and above is is very good, 20 and above is excellent, and 30 and above is otherworldly, which is reserved for Matt Chapman and and players of that ilk. Uh, Anderson was at 13. That's good. That was an improvement over the zero that he posted uh, in 2018 and the negative five of 2017. Um, what happened was, well, I think the shifting, uh, the ability to detect player performance in shifts helped him. Uh, I'm looking at it split evenly. His run saved, he was as good in shifts as he was not in shifts. And the Marlins certainly moved guys around a lot last year. Uh, he was good on balls hit down the line. He was good at balls straight on. He was good at turning the double play. Um, and I'm looking to, it looks like we have a system that we kind of sprinkle out there publicly in articles or in tweets uh, called our good fielding play defensive misplay system, which looks at um, 30 different categories of ways that you can make a good play. Like um, you can dive for a ball and make a, a really nice stab of a ball and throw across the diamond to get an out. You can do a quick pivot on a double play, things of that sort. Uh, and then we have 60 categories of mistakes. Uh, and that can range from slipping and falling to overthrowing a cutoff man, a uh, number of different things that guys can do. Uh, Brian Anderson at third base in 2018 had six good plays and 20 missed plays. And think of that like from an eye test perspective, that you saw him do essentially three times as much bad as you saw him do great. 
Um, that turned around in 2019 to where his ratio, which was 6 to 20 in 2018, was now 1 to 1. It was wow. 11 good and 12 bad. So he, he, in a comparable number of innings, almost exactly the same, he cut his mistakes and he improved his really good plays. So I think he would feel good about his taking to the position uh, and he improved considerably uh, at that. So that's your statistical ammunition, I guess, so to speak, if you want to go to someone and say, I think Matt Chapman, I think that Brian Anderson, I keep saying Chapman, Brian Anderson is a good third baseman. Uh, right field, um, his strength is his arm. Um, last year, so we have a way of evaluating base running where it's not just assists that you made, but it did the guy try to take an extra base on your arm. In Brian Anderson's case, he threw out seven out of 35 who were attempting to advance against him. That's a pretty good ratio. Another outfield assist, and there are two outs. I'll tell you what, the entire Dodger dugout is staring into right field like, what just happened? Yeah, that's right. Brian Anderson, one of the best arms in right field in baseball. Watch the technique. I mean, the turn, the fire, and the accuracy. My goodness, one hop throw. The birdie at third base, and Turner is sliding into a tag. Yeah, and I'm sure you're familiar with the basic context in that a couple of years ago, the Marlins had a pretty great outfield, and they had all that taken care of internally with three-star players, and after they made those trades, it was really by necessity that they moved Anderson into the outfield in the first place once they kind of came to terms with the fact that the other outfielders they had in the organization were all sub-replacement level and it's even, I mean, this isn't something that's very easy to track, but the fact that Anderson never played a single inning of outfield in his entire professional career, going back to the minor leagues, and I don't even think in college either. You'd have to go back to like over a decade for a time when he was actually playing outfield in any significant games in his life until the 2018 season. And uh, I mean, as, as you mentioned, the fact that he already had that arm to be at third base and how you're able to apply that to a totally different position, but uh, it still boggles my mind. And it's one reason why it's pretty popular just because yeah, by, by necessity moved into this position and the improvement that he made with gaining this extra experience. And maybe it's possible that getting even more added experience to that will, will make him one of the better defensive right fielders in all of baseball. Hopefully if he continues on that progression, I guess. Sure. Um, you're making me want to talk to him at some point. I guess. <laughs> I uh, that's, I think he has an impressive um, an impressive set of skills uh, that allows him to do that, and clearly uh, he showed um, in that sample of games at least. We'll see if he can keep it consistent uh, that he was able to pick up a new position. Uh, good for him, certainly. Yeah, um, another outfielder. Um, hopefully for the 2020 season for the Marlins is going to be Lewis Brinson, who as usual is doing excellent in spring training. If you just look at his spring training offensive performance, he's one of the better players in all of baseball, but the past couple of years offensively that has not translated at all to the regular season. It's gotten so extreme to the point that last year he was sent down to AAA. He came back later in the year and continued to struggle. And, um, but of course the silver lining to it, aside from some of the intangibles that he brings and the fact that he's only 25 years old is that he's been able to at least hold his own in center field. And it's 
it's not easy to, to find a guy that has a, a well-rounded defensive skill set in center field and can make it work there. As things currently project, like for the unlike the last couple of years, he's not being handed that everyday center fielder job. And again, it's because these offensive numbers for him are some of the worst in all of baseball. So my question to you is whether you think there's a certain uh, break-even point defensively. If, if someone like Brinson, who has been so far below replacement level at the plate and on the bases and is giving back so much value there, is there a certain threshold in defensive runs saved that he could provide to the team defensively that would kind of justify him having any sort of regular role? Because aside from the spring training numbers, which didn't hold up at all the last couple of years, there's not really reason to be encouraged about what he does at the plate. So is there, what is as best you could quantify it? How can someone that is literally just a a glove only type of player justify having a regular role on a major league team? Oh, I think he better be better defensively. Uh, He's, he's essentially grading out his average right now. If you're an average defender and a poor hitter, um, you're not going to play uh, for the long term. Uh, right. I would say like, you would want someone like that to be like a plus 10 at least to, to justify, like in the um, comparison, like the early days of Buxton's career in Minnesota when he wasn't hitting. At least they knew that if they put him out there, uh, he was going to save them a lot of runs. Um, that, that's, uh, and I guess another example, Kiermaier right now in Tampa Bay, uh, Kevin Kiermaier isn't hitting at all, but you, you put him out there uh, because the guy has an unbelievable glove. There's, there isn't necessarily the incentive with Brinson to put him out there at this point uh, until he shows something better uh, on either the offensive or defensive end. Right. Well, one other young player that we're a little bit more encouraged about down here is Jorge Alfaro because he was more or less a league average hitter and um, has – and he's at a position of need with the Marlins at catcher. They, of course, they acquired Jorge Alfaro from the Phillies in the JT Real Muto trade. And um, outside of, of DRS, if you look at some of the other measurables that Real Muto and Alfaro have as athletes in terms of the sprint speed that they run with and their, their kind of batted ball quality, it's led some people to dream that if everything goes right with Alfaro, he could be some semblance of the overall player that Real Muto was and obviously has gone on to be since the trade. Um, so what I'm wondering is I know catcher defense is even probably more complicated than most other positions to parse out and try to break down what exactly um, makes it all work. And Alfaro in particular, he really stands out for his arm strength, but uh, I, I know some of the, the framing metrics for him have been a little bit mixed and uh, even the other factors that go into the, the equation that I'm sure you could testify to um, what I'm curious is if you do like pick it apart between Jorge Alfaro and JT Real Muto, the, the old Marlins catcher that people were accustomed to and the one that they have at least for the short term foreseeable future, uh, what are, what are, how would those guys compare? What are some things that you feel Alfaro still has to improve upon to become a plus defensive catcher and what are his assets already? Sure. Uh, well, I think you have to take into account that J.C. Realmuto improved considerably uh, on the defensive side when he went from Florida to Philadelphia. They worked with him considerably on pitch framing, uh, and he got better at that and eliminated what was a minus in his game. Uh, in terms of Alfaro, Alfaro has come out the last two years slightly above average in terms of framing. Our catcher metrics 
incorporate a bunch of different things, uh, prominent among them, pitch framing, pitch blocking, bunt defense, stolen bases, and had to do on balls that were hit right in front of the plate. Uh, and then there's one or two other things. I'm going to, to simplify this, I'll just focus on those. Um, stolen bases, deterrence, he's been good. Like, he's a little above average. There aren't that many, necessarily, that many stolen base attempts these days, but he cut down a, a fair percentage of guys, and there were not necessarily an inordinate amount of opportunities uh, against him. The area in which his game is not good uh, and, I guess, needs work uh, is pitch blocking. Uh, two years ago, he was among the worst in baseball in our pitch blocking metrics. Uh, last year, he got a little bit better, but was still negative. If he had been positive in that, he would have had a positive defensive value overall as a catcher. Uh, he is, it's good to be slightly good at a lot of different things. He's slightly good at uh, pitch framing. He's slightly good at steals. He's slightly good at bunts. Uh, he's just not good at pitch blocking. And that wouldn't necessarily impact a lot of guys unless you were really at the bottom of the list. And in parts of his career, he's been really at the bottom of the list. Uh, and for us, the way that we do it is like, all right, there's a guy on base um, pitching the jerk. If he blocks it, he gets a fraction of a value. If he missed it and the base runner advanced, uh, he loses value. And over the course of the season, there are hundreds and hundreds of blocks, and then there are the few that slip by. Uh, and a good catcher will have a percentage of like 92, 93% blocking. Uh, and the bad catchers will be in the 80s. And I believe two years ago that he was in the 80s uh, and boosted that a little bit, but not enough to be a, a valuable guy on the defensive end. Whereas Real Muto, uh, as I mentioned, better at framing last year and much better at stolen base deterrence than just about anyone in baseball last season. Uh, that was a big boon to his game. And he was good at blocking pitches uh, for really only the second time in his career uh, that he, he contributed significant value in that. Yeah. Yeah. We, we miss that guy. I mean, people, people <laughs> I pretend so. to move on and, and turn the page on it, but it's really pretty irreplaceable. Um, so we're, we're speaking with Mark Simon here and we're going to pivot away from the individuals to a team wide trend that I think a lot of people have been able to notice just by watching Marlins games but some of the stats I've seen are pretty astounding about how they've been on this really steady progression of increasing how often they, they employ infield shifts going back several years. And it's um, uh, trying to find the, the source of it and the significance of the movement has been difficult for me because it comes right in the middle of a time where the entire organization turned over at the very top level. They changed ownership, they changed front office. And, uh, I mean, they did make a greater emphasis on bringing in more analytically-minded people into the front office, but this is seemingly a trend that even started before before all those changes took place. Uh, could could you like, try to give it, put it in perspective how, um, how their, their uh, shifting frequency has changed over the last few years, including where it was this past year? Yeah, uh, it was uh, – that's in the book, uh, as a matter of fact, in, in some – uh, level of detail, but just, I guess, play spoiler on that. Uh, if you remember the first two series of the season, uh, they kind of shifted like crazy. They were the most aggressive team in baseball uh, at doing it, and it was clear that there was some sort of directive, hey, let's do this more, and let's be active uh, in this. But yeah, if you look, like, it's funny, in the NL East, there aren't as many hitters that seem to demand it 
as there are in other divisions. All of the teams in the NL East, other than the Marlins, are like bottom 10 in terms of frequency of using shift, whereas the Marlins were fifth last year in overall usage. They doubled their usage 2018 to 2019, and they doubled their usage 2016 to 2018. Uh, They have gone from being, I guess, what you would call non-users to super users. Um, And I think when you are a struggling team, when you are looking for any little edge you can get, uh, any little legal advantage that you can make, that you will do things on the defensive end to try to increase your percentages of uh, getting out. And I guess for them that uh, that they want that to happen, it doesn't necessarily happen. You also have to remember you have to have the players that can do it, and they don't necessarily have the best combination of guys out there at this point that can uh, make those kind of plays. One other specific change that's coming to Marlins Park this year is the playing surface that they're changing for the first time since they opened the new building. They've had it now eight years in Marlins Park, and they had a lot of difficulty maintaining their natural grass. Uh, It kept... Uh, ripping up in different places and growing in inconsistently and the whole look of it wasn't up to par. So like the organization made this decision this off season to finally install artificial turf. And it was inspired, they say by the surface being used in Arizona. And of course, overall, there's only a handful of teams across baseball that still play on some type of artificial surface. Um, what sort of data do you have on the way that artificial surface affects players? I mean, maybe it's it depends on a case-by-case basis or it would be certain positions more than others. And uh, I, I know there are several different products as well. Like this surface isn't necessarily the same type that they're using in Toronto or in Tampa Bay, but uh, it's still a, a somewhat of a change. And um, to understand the motivation for the team to make that change in the first place. Um, yeah. Is there any sort of significance that you see in the way that defenses perform when they play on artificial versus natural grass? We haven't done that study. I would be interested to see how that comes out. I think the thing that will happen that I, I guess Miguel Rojas becomes the test case for this. Uh, If the hops are truer, it should be easier in theory for the shortstop to make plays, but the ball travels faster. So is that a disadvantage to Rojas for not having the foot speed to make a play uh, or quickness, I guess, to make a play? Uh, Or is he going to benefit from the nice true hops? And you might have a better understanding of that than I would uh, at this point. As I said, I, I don't know. We haven't done a study on that. Um, but I would that would be the thing that I would be looking at, is, the, is your shortstop and your second baseman able to handle the speed of balls that are going to be hit a little bit harder? Okay. Well, I have, I have one more question that uh, hopefully won't stump you too badly, but it was it's a curiosity for me because right at time in this Marlins rebuild, where um, they have some interesting young players on their active roster already, uh, but frankly, some of the ones with the highest ceiling to actually be star players are still in the higher levels of the minor leagues. Uh, A few of them in particular are really well-regarded for their gloves, such as a shortstop named Jazz Chisholm, first baseman Lewin Diaz, 
these are all guys that have like an estimated time of arrival sometime within the next year, either at the end of 2020 or early 2021. And uh, with defensive run save, that's something that uh, Sports Info Solutions records during major league games, um, not necessarily uh, in any of these minor league baseball games. So we I'm, do, we do. Oh, you do. Well, that- uh, we have people that are tracking games, AAA and AA, uh, Japan, Korea, um, and uh, I think Kaye uh, as well. We don't necessarily get every game, but we get most. Um, and I'm looking. You you said Jazz Chisholm, so I went to his page on our internal site to see if there was anything there. It's hard, like the conversions are hard uh, because we're judging them against a major league standard. Uh, So most minor leaguers come out poorly against a major league standard. He comes out a little below average in the 57 games that we tracked, roughly 500 innings. Looks like he wasn't necessarily turning the double play at a high rate, but that's a small sample. Um, And that the issue for him and I don't know if this is a, an issue of how the team was playing him or if it's his issue. Um, ball hit in the shortstop third base hole. He was not uh, rating well at turning those into outs. So there's, I guess, kind of like a teaser for you on Jazz Chisholm. Uh, he might come up and he might be great. Um, I can tell you, like, Matt Chapman had really good minor league numbers for defensive run save. Um, Scott Kingry of the Phillies had really good numbers for minor league for defensive run save. We haven't necessarily seen it from him yet. So hard to tell uh, if the numbers are meaningful, but there's your brief analysis on Jazz Chisholm. I would say take that and then read what Keith Law or Eric Longenhagen or some of the other prospect people say and maybe put them together. Maybe there's something there. Right. Well, that's that's the default that fans have to go with if they don't have these this proprietary information is trusting the tool grades that evaluators give out, trust their eyes, um, trust the very traditional awards. The Marlins actually had a couple of players in their system win minor league gold gloves last year. But uh, it's I assume there's some sort of correlation between, of course, performing well in the eyes of your peers and in basic stats at the minor league level and having that translate to the majors. But yeah, it'd be great to get our hands on on the minor league DRS numbers just to be sure. I, I bet that correlation is even stronger than the typical scouting grades and such. Sure, I, I would I would lean yes on that. Um, I don't necessarily have that to tell you like that's a fact. Right. Um, but I think that I think that we do a good job of tracking that kind of thing. Perfect. Well, I've had a chance already to peek at the fielding bible and not just the Marlin stuff, the other teams I found really compelling. Some of the interviews you had in there as well were very revealing. Uh, could you just let our audience know where they can get their own copy of this? Sure. Um, the book is for sale at Amazon, Barnes & Noble. The publisher is accessports.com. If you can't get it at one of those other places, certainly go to accessports.com. You can also check out fieldingbible.com for updated defensive numbers. Uh, maybe a little bit more detailed than what's available at Fangraphs and Baseball Reference, where our data exists as well. Uh, and you can check out sportsinfosolutions.com if you want to read more about our company. And then lastly, our Twitter is sportsinfo underscore S-I-S. Uh, check it out. We put a lot of good numbers up there. Perfect. Thanks a lot for your time, Mark, and good luck on this long tour. I know I'm not the first one that you've done an appearance with, and I'm sure I'm, I'm not the last one, but it's, it's been great to get your insight on all this. Absolutely. Happy to talk to you.